Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, regardless of whether you live in the United States or elsewhere throughout the world. But I hope all of you have had a good had a good weekend and have had a good start to your week. Well, we have a lot to uh, cover in this episode, uh, podcast segment episode of uh, Michael Schumacher's The Wreck of the Carl D. Bradley, A True Story of Loss, Survival, and Rescue at Sea. Well, before I um, begin the lead-off question for this episode, maybe we should just do a quick uh, brief recap of where we were when I was on the air with you all from the uh, previous night. I do remember um, sharing with you all how, um, while funeral preparations were underway um, for the uh, victims whose loved ones' uh, bodies had been recovered, the Board of Inquiry wants to get um, their hearings underway as quickly as possible so that they don't have to um, deal with anything um, out of the um, ordinary, such as uh, attorneys whom would have the power to do such things like hiding or finding ways to keep uh, witnesses silent through means of uh, bribery or, in the worst case scenarios, by removing them altogether uh, means of uh, violence. Of course, history has shown that uh, witnesses who who were key witnesses, um, say, to a murder, or um, most notably if it was organized crime related, uh, were often taken out uh, by people from above um, whom they perceived as um, basically being as individuals who would come forward and share information that, was, uh, that would become damaging, that would not only impact, say, the um, head honchos, but just people in general, basically disrupt a uh, system. Of course, we're dealing with a whole different matter here. We're dealing with the loss of a ship, but at the same time, the Board of Inquiry wants to get this right. And the last thing that, you know, the Board of Inquiry is not trying to play favoritism, but at the same time, they don't want to see a situation get so out of hand where family members turn, not just so much turn on one another from within, but families and the community turning on each other and then have, you know, mass lawsuits be filed against Bradley Transportation Company. But that I will have to share in another podcast as to whether or not any kind of uh, settlement does get reached. Because it's one thing for a board of inquiry to go about engaging um, in its findings. But then we have to ask ourselves, is there an actual court case involving Bradley Transportation Company. And if there's not a court case, is there a settlement? One way or another, you either go to court to win or you avoid by uh, you avoid litigation matters by reaching a settlement outside the courtroom. So our first uh, leadoff question for this episode is going to be the following. What's significant about Friday, November 21st, 1958? regarding the mourning of the Bradley crewmen whose bodies were already recovered. Does anybody know what's significant other than um, the mourning of the Bradley crewmen whose bodies have already been recovered? Well, for starters, all classes and school activities at City High have been canceled, and rightfully so. I mean, I don't know how students could function in class. I mean, 
as I mentioned from the previous podcast, you know, 56 children have been impacted by this uh, disaster. It's not all confined to uh, secondary uh, students in secondary school. Elementary age school children are impacted by the loss as well. Even children as young as uh, five years old or less are uh, impacted. So, uh, sadly, in this instance, uh, no child has been left behind in terms of the overall impacts of not just the the loss of the ship itself, but knowing that so many uh, crewmen's lives were lost. So yes, even if you are a student at City High and you didn't lose a loved one um, in the uh, sinking of the Bradley, you definitely know of uh, plenty of other people who have been um, negatively impacted by this, who have actually lost an immediate family member um, to this um, terrible uh, incident. So regardless, it's uh, it, it's the right decision to uh, cancel classes at City High. But it turns out, folks, that City High is going to be used to hold a mass wake. And what I mean by wake, folks, like a mass wake, in this case is a mass viewing for the deceased Bradley crewman. You know, I, I think sometimes, you know, it's one thing, you know, we're so accustomed to going to a funeral home and and viewing a, a deceased person's body in a casket. But as I had said from the previous uh, podcast, um, Rogers City was not equipped to deal with um, with a mass um, with a mass wake. But luckily, the high school is big enough to where they can accommodate a mass wake. You know, it's interesting, like, I take, for example, two of the deceased uh, Bradley crewmen being Jim Selke and Gary Strezelecki. Of course, Gary Strezelecki was one of the four uh, that made it to the raft, but sadly, he lost his life. Both of these men were recent uh, City High School grads. Gary Strezelecki's body was found, but on November 22nd, or rather on um, November 21st, I should say, of 1958, mourners will walk by and view his casket open for public viewing. Jim Selke graduated in 1957, a year earlier from City High, and sadly his body still hasn't been found. His body is one of 15 Bradley Crewman's bodies that have yet to be recovered. It's awkward enough that... Um, that for the um, for the friends of the families who've lost loved ones are going to be walking in to City High and seeing people that they grew up with, seeing their bodies open for public viewing. I mean, yes, it's it's a good thing to pay respects to those who've passed on, but this is a very very um, different ordeal when you're. You know, it's one thing to pay respects to one person who's passed on, but now you're having to do it with at least almost 10 crewmen uh, close enough to it. I mean, that that to me is quite um, devastating. I don't know how you um, can um, compose yourself to go to something like this, but you have to do it. That's not to say that some people simply can't do it for emotional reasons, and that's respectable, but... 
this to me is the best way that Roger City is has modified the matter in terms of making it a fair um, situation where everyone can come together and grieve, and by doing so, uh, coming to City High for it. All crewmen's caskets are decorated with flags. The deceased crewmen will remain lying in state until early evening and then get sent to nearby St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church, where all nine crewmen lying in state had attended. Did you hear that, folks? Nine crewmen. I mean, I was close enough. I, I said almost like ten people there a moment ago, but nine crewmen are lying in state. It's a tough pill to swallow, especially when you got a very tight-knit community where everyone knows each other. If they don't know you directly, they know you some way or another through another acquaintance. Mourners are so stunned by what had happened to the Carl D. Bradley that many in general struggle to speak, and rightfully so. They're at a loss of words. I mean, sometimes it's easy to say, well, bad a bad incident or a, um, a tragedy, an epic tragedy, can only happen somewhere else. It can't happen in a small town. Well, as much as I would like to think that was the case, uh, I've come to realize that history has shown to us that no matter where you may live, a tragedy can occur. And it doesn't always have to be in a big metropolitan area. So yes, um, if I was alive in 1958, living in Rogers City, Michigan, would I have gone to City High? I mean, let's say I was old enough to go. If I was well over the age of 10 or if I was over the age of 18, then yes, I would go and pay my respects to those men that, let's say I, I knew some of those men, but if I didn't know the others, I would certainly uh, pay my respects to them out of respects out of respect for their um, for their remaining um immediate loved ones, the extended families, but I can't imagine uh, just being in someone's shoes alive, not just so much in 1958, but just being at City High and knowing that nine crewmen aboard, a, aboard the flagship uh, vessel of the Bradley Transportation Company are now no longer alive. Not just nine men, yes, we're, we're dealing with 33 men whose lives were lost but just knowing that you're seeing nine caskets lying in state. It's a lot to take in. I might say that again, but it's worth saying because we have to put ourselves in these people's shoes. You know, it's one thing to, you know, to be shocked by someone who died unexpectedly, but when it's this epic of a proportion involving the greater community as a whole, it does take on a whole nother meaning. So, yes, many of the uh, mourners struggle to speak. They just don't know, they don't have the right words in them because of the shock. However, the best that many of these men, many of these people can do is offer their condolences to the families of the deceased and lost crewmen, the lost crewmen whose bodies still are missing. So yes, the best you can do is say, you know, I'm terribly sorry for, for your uh, 
for the passing of uh, Gary Strezelecki. I'm very sorry to hear about, I'm just going to use a fictitious name, but, you know, John Smith. I'm sorry to hear about his passing. It, it just came as a, a tragic, um, as something very unexpected. Um, and then, yes, the uh, the mourners who are there, you know, would, would certainly say, you know, we remember Gary Strezelecki as a very nice person who always had a smile on his face and uh, knew how to treat people right. I mean, those to me are the right things to say because that's that's the right way to go about trying to keep a deceased uh, crewman's uh, crew person's uh, spirit alive in the most difficult and trying of times. All right, here's another question uh, for us to think about. What else is taking place nearby City High that pertains to the Carl D. Bradley's loss? The U.S. Coast Guard's Board of Inquiry begins its first hearings at Prescue Isle County Courthouse, but not many people attend. But that would be, but that's expected. Think about this. Where are most people attending? Or where are most people in attendance right now? At City High. Or if they haven't arrived at City High, they're getting ready to. So, you know, the Board of Inquiry or the U.S. Coast Guard Board of Inquiry isn't upset over the fact that not many people are in attendance. However, I did find it interesting that those who were in attendance ranged from uh, an attorney for Elmer Fleming, whom showed up, and then two attorneys from Cleveland, Ohio, that rep whom represented the owners of the Bradley. Remember, uh, the Carl D. Bradley was constructed in Lorraine, Ohio, between, um, most notably in 1926, and then in uh, summer of 1927, that's when the Bradley um, began her first... Um, journey along um, the waters of Lake Michigan, where she uh, went from the port of Calcite down to uh, Gary, Indiana. Uh, another question here is this, uh, what sensitive issue will have to be addressed during the hearing procedures? Well, I think it's fair to say that there could be any number of sense, any number of issues deemed sensitive that would have to be addressed. But if one were to ask me, Kirk, what issue do you believe has to be addressed without fail that is labeled as sensitive? Whether or not Carl D. Bradley Captain Roland Bryan was to be held liable for jeopardizing the vessel and crew by taking them out into a storm. Okay, so this is where a lot of facts, and not just facts, where a lot of evidence is going to have to be weighed into, into consideration. Did Roland Bryan know that it was not safe to take his ship out into uncharted waters where a storm was ensuing? And not just the fact that a storm was ensuing, but also knowing that his ship was in need of repairs. Well, Roland Bryan knew that his ship was in need of repairs, but Roland Bryan also couldn't control the last-minute notice that was sent to him from um, from Bradley Transportation Company advising that a last-minute um, cargo um, shipment had to be uh, fulfilled where the Bradley was leaving Gary, Indiana, to go back northward um, to um, Rogers City. The problem was that Mother Nature was in the way. 
I mean, sure, Captain Roland Bryan could have declined this, but at the same time, <laughs> I don't know how well that would have gone with um, upper-level officials. I mean, yes, another boat could have, uh, in the Bradley Transportation Company, would have been more than happy probably to have covered the uh, mission, but who's to say that that other ship would have been spared? We also have to remember, too, and this will be discussed in another podcast, we have to keep in mind Bradley only made 43 voyages by mid-November, and while 43 voyages to some of us might seem like a lot, that's a very low number. We have to remember, too, as we had learned early on, when um, before learning about the Bradley sinking, was that the Bradley um, had been tied up on the dock for a few months, and that forced her crew to have to work on other boats with with uh, the Bradley uh, transportation fleet. That is the overall number of boats that the Bradley had. And I want to say by 1958, the Bradley um, Bradley transportation had about uh, nine ships, and of course one of them being the John G. Munson which had uh, overtaken the Bradley in terms of being the largest ship on the fleet. So this was a very uh, difficult year for the Carl D. Bradley, and Roland D. Bryan, Captain Bryan, probably would have given been more than happy to have done one more run just to any kind of way to make up for loss of uh, revenue, because after all, it's not just how many runs you do on the lakes. It's all about the revenue that you can um, acquire. After all, companies need their goods delivered, and the last thing company officials don't want are timid captains. Captains have to be willing to go out into the um, unsettling waters, even as the skies of November turn gloomy. It's all part of the business, and yes, there are pros and cons to it, but somebody's got to do it. So yes, the most sensitive issue is going to be for the board in determining is whether or not Captain Roland Bryan was to be held liable for jeopardizing his vessel and the crew by taking them out into a storm. It is fair to say that nobody wants to be out on the waters when weather is about to change out of nowhere for the worse. But at the same time, I may have mentioned this already a moment ago, but I'll just say it here. But at the same time, the ship ship captains and their crewmen make necessary sacrifices by going out into Great Lakes waters, <laughs> even when the skies of November turn gloomy. I know I just said that a moment ago, but it's important to keep reiterating that. You know, yes, we can we can be cautious all we want. But the more cautious and the more timid we become, it's fair to say that the businesses whom we cater to probably aren't going to like us anymore. The transportation company officials could decide that, hey, not only is the captain a timid leader, but he's got a crew below him who are just as timid. We might as well just need to replace the whole, the entire crew that's currently on this boat. That wouldn't bode well. That wouldn't bode well at all. So um, this is a, 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 it's not so much a situation, it's a mentality, a philosophy that captains and crewmen have to um, find common ground. They have to be cohesive. They have to work together as a team. This is not I, me, myself. This is us, we, ourselves. Some decisions, yes, are questionable, but at the same time, you have to ask yourself, 
do you go behind the captain's back? Because if you do go behind the captain's back and do something that, that's, that's bad and you know backfiring, you'll be replaced. No questions asked. You'll get replaced in a heartbeat. Even worse, you might get reprimanded or you might get um, stripped of all your duties altogether. So the bottom line is this. Um, it's one thing to question a decision, but as to how far you question it is a whole other thing. Despite a stellar safety record, Bradley Transportation Company officials, including Captain Roland Bryan, all knew the ship was in need of major repair work come the winter of 1958 to 1959. The bigger question before everyone, most notably on the Board of Inquiry, was the following, and this was in quotations. And I've noted it in quotes, word by word. Was the Bradley up to the task of taking on the storm on November 17th to the 18th? Well, you know, the Bradleys, um, the Bradleys whole had, you know, endured a lot of uh, wear and tear. You know, think about how much cargo this ship was transporting, especially in her early years. Um, she was hauling 16, 17,000 tons of limestone. She was setting records left and right, which is amazing. But isn't it fair to say that even a ship's overall toughness has limits? It does. There's only so much bending and um, twisting that a ship can endure, even in the most unpleasant of uh, weather conditions. And it doesn't always have to be confined to the month of November. And then you've got the Bradley's uh, rivets. Uh, the rivet, some of the rivets had come out, and they were basically what you call like patch-style jobs where they were fixed and all, but but they weren't um, properly sealed. They weren't sealed tight to where, <laughs> if anything happened, how are you going to replace the problem when you're out in the middle of the water? So it's almost fair to say, and I don't, and I know I should be careful about this because I'm not, I've never been on one of these um, Lakers or huge uh, freighter ships that uh, make their way, you know, through the St. Lawrence River. Although my wife and I, when we were in the Thousand Islands in New York State last summer, we did see ships coming through the St. Lawrence River, making their way into the Great Lakes, and that was really awesome. But at the same time, I've never been on any of these ships before to know the inner workings. You know, on the outside, the ships look fine, but we don't know what's going on with them on the inside. That's the problem right there, folks, with the Bradley, was that her internal um, structure was um, on borrowed time. And isn't it fair to say that, okay... Wouldn't it have just made practical sense for the Bradley to have gone up to Wisconsin to have docked and said, hey, we can't do this run, but we can get someone else to do it for us? Well, that's easier said than done. Who's to say that company officials could have come back and said, well, if you do that, you'll have an entire set of replacements for the next year. That is a whole new set of crew people who are willing to do the exact opposite that you just went about foregoing. So yes, the bigger question is, 
and we'll find this out in another podcast, we might find out some information here shortly, but but we might know more in another podcast. And yes, the question is, was the Bradley up to the task of taking on the storm on November 17th to the 18th? As of Friday, November 21st, 1958, how many men's bodies have yet to be recovered? I think I probably already said that earlier, but I'll just mention it again. Is it 12, is it 15, or is it 10? Uh, the answer is choice B, 15. For these families, it's very painstaking. But then again, it's painstaking for those whose, bo- whose loved ones' bodies were already recovered and are lying in state. But I can't imagine being one of the 15 families whose husbands or sons or uncles, nephews, cousins whose bodies have yet to be recovered. So these families are left with an assortment of decisions. Like what kind of decisions? Like waiting it out until their loved ones are officially declared dead. Sure, you could wait it out for as long as you want, but that could take months. You know, some people hold out for as long as six months to a year or even longer, thinking that maybe one day they'll get a call saying that their loved one has been found. This might sound far-fetched here, but we have to remember in 1958, there's no such thing as uh, the missing. You know, when we get um, ads in the mail, down below you'll see where it says the missing, and it will tell you how long a a person has been missing. And then a computerized um, sketch that would tell you what they might look like today if they were still alive. That wasn't around in 1958. Um, So there are families even to this day who still hold on and cling on to hope, knowing that if a loved one who's been missing for 15 years will be found. But we have to remember even in 1958, the no, nobody had the luxury of being able to report um that a loved one was missing through um, have you seen me that kind of thing no that that just wasn't there so yes one option for these fam for the 15 families is they can wait it out but there's no guarantee how long um that will there's no guarantee as to how soon they could get an answer or they could decide upon going forward and planning funeral services for their lost loved ones in other words is difficult as that might be the best they could do is go ahead and plan a funeral service and and honor their loved one so that um, perhaps they can just rest peacefully knowing that they hadn't been forgotten the families of the 15 men unaccounted for have to grapple whether or not to attend the funeral services of those men already accounted for knowing there still might be a sliver of hope that some of the 15 men could be alive. So yes, if I was one of those 15 families and say I had lost a loved one, yes, I've got to make a a very, very tough executive decision knowing, okay, do I go to pay my respects to those men who have already passed away and their bodies are lying in state? Or do I stay home so that I can give those families all the privacy, all the privacy they need uh, to grieve. Well, it's a double-edged sword. If it were me, 
Yes, it might be easier said than done, but if it were me, I would go and pay my respects to those uh, men who had already died and are lying in state because um, that is what they would want me to do. And they would also want me to keep the other 15 men's spirits alive with the hopes that if not all 15 came home, that maybe five at best would come home. There still is that sliver of hope that we all want to believe that somehow maybe these men, some of these men would still come home. But only time will tell. Is St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church designed to look like a ship? You know, when we think of churches, we just think of them as, I'm not sure the best way to describe, you know, I mean, yes, a church is a place of worship. You know, churches do have unique structures in terms of how they are built. But it turns out that St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church is, in fact, designed to look like a ship. The church was built like a ship in honor of Rogers City, Rogers City's maritime history, and let alone its industry. So what a fitting tribute, to say the least. Now, Saturday, November 22, 1958. Funeral services are held at St. Ignatius for the nine Bradley crewmen whose caskets are placed in the center aisle from one end to the opposite. You know, when I think of going to a funeral service, I often think of the casket way up in the front and the minister um, conducting the sermon, not just the sermon, but the services. He is above the casket preaching to the con congregation about the individual and what that individual stood for. But, but this is a different situation. We've got nine crewmen who've died and are in, a fun in the funeral services for all nine crewmen. So there's no, way that no, there's no way that nine crewmen's bodies can be placed up in the front. But how clever to place them from one end to the opposite so that everyone can view the caskets. Of course, the caskets are closed. But everyone can see them and know that they aren't forgotten. So, but besides families of the deceased, friends, neighbors, sailors, from city dignitaries to Michigan Limestone and Bradley Company representatives, everyone has come out in large masses, or I should say in large numbers, to pay their respects to the fallen Bradley crewmen. And that's a great gesture, folks. It's not just the church people coming. Everybody's been impacted by this. And whatever differences there are, or whatever feelings there may be, those things need to be set aside. I guess I say that because um, I don't think this was the case in 1958. If it was, you just didn't hear about it that often. But sadly, in today's time, um, funerals, along with weddings, even family reunion functions... Sometimes they don't always bring out the best. And I'm not trying to get personal about that, folks, but but in 1958, here we are dealing with the loss of nine crewmen. I could see how emotions are, are high. But you would hope that 
everyone would certainly keep their composure in this time of sadness. Were Bradley's survivors Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays in attendance at the funeral services? No. Both men are still in the hospital where they will each get released come a few days later. Some families of unrecovered crewmen do attend the funeral services at St. Ignatius, whereas others cannot bring themselves to showing up for emotional reasons. And that's totally understandable. I think for those who could not show up, maybe they weren't ready to face the reality knowing that it would only be a short amount of time or a short period of time before they too would be in the same boat as the um, families whose um, deceased uh, loved ones were already um, had already experienced knowing that their um, caskets um, were in the center aisle of the church. Nobody can prepare for this, let alone just one person's funeral, but it's very hard when, you know, families know each other and know, you know, now come to the grips realizing they've lost an immediate loved one. It's very hard, but yet you've got to be there for one another, even in these uh, darkest uh, moments. I don't believe many of y'all would know this person. Uh, he's not a celebrity. Um, I don't think he was someone of huge fame, but he did um, deliver an important message. And it's not just a message to the families, but I think it should be a message to all of us, even in the present state with the unstable world we live in. Who is uh, Stephen S. Wozniki? And that last name is spelled W-O-Z. N-I-C-K-I. He is a Catholic bishop whom was presiding over mass funeral services at St. Ignatius. His sermon was geared towards cautioning the congregation from going down the wrong, from going down the wrong path. What wrong path could that possibly have been? A, wrong, a, a path that would have been comprised of bitterness. And what I mean by this, folks, is bitterness, considering that 15 crewmen still had remained unaccounted to many families of the already deceased struggling to find closure and peace. So here, 15 families might still be able to cling on to some hope, but yet nine families whose um, loved one's funeral service took place today in, in St. Ignatius Catholic Church have to go have to now find ways to move on with their life but yet but yet have not been able to attain any true uh closure and peace i'm sure they will find it it's just not going to happen overnight with a light switch but as for uh bishop Wozniki, he couldn't have been any more correct than than to warn the congregation that while yes, it's important to mourn, it's important to be, it's okay to be sad, but don't take any anger out on, on those whose loved ones have still been unaccounted for, because it's not going to resolve anything. No matter how sad we are, and, sad, and no matter how much we're hurting inside, we're in it together. 
In other words, for Bishop Wozniki, this is not an I, me, myself. Um, it's not an I, me, myself agenda and how you choose to recover. It's an us, we, ourselves, because we're thinking about the larger community as a whole here. The memorials uh, for the deceased Bradley crewmen are held everywhere around the Great Lakes region, but also as far south in Michigan as Detroit. And for those of you who were with me when I did uh, last uh, summer, uh, the, uh, the Mighty Fitz, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Michael Schumacher, the reason why Detroit is so um, essential for these, um, for the services is because there is a uh, church there known as the Mariner's Church, which has been in existence since the 19th century. This church welcomes um, people of all faiths. It's not confined to just one sect of Protestantism. It's not confined to Catholicism. It's confined, it's open to all um, followers who of the Protestant uh, faith as well as to the um, Roman Catholic faith. But uh, the Mariner's Church was built as a haven for those whom were seeking prayer in times of um, sorrow, grief, discomfort. And what I mean by discomfort is knowing that, okay, if, if I, John Smith, or I'll use my name, I, Kirk Monroe, survived a, um, a terrifying ordeal out on Lake Erie, for example, because, you know, I'll use that as an example because Detroit is right. Detroit touches Lake Erie. Um, so if I, if I survived a, um, if I survived something that might have been the equivalent of what the um, crewmen of the Carl Bradley endured, then I would go to the uh, Mariner's Church as a way to um, pray for those who had lost their lives and pray for those who are still on the waters, and pray for those who will always be safe on the waters, regardless of the um, shipping season. So the Mariner's Church was a, um, a way for, um, for men of the uh, maritime industry to uh, come and uh, reflect their uh, thoughts on life, and to pray for those who had come before them. And um, the bell rang... 33 times for each man lost. Yes, even for the 15 men who were unaccounted for, their names were um, mentioned as a result of the bell ringing. So if 25 men lose their lives and there were no survivors on a ship out on one of the body, out, out on, say, Lake Erie or Michigan, the Mariner's Church in Detroit will ring a bell 25 times for every man whose life was lost. Will Dennis Meredith and 14 of his crewmates' bodies ever be found? I said earlier that I wanted to, I was hoping we might have a sliver of hope here, folks, but um, I wish I could say something more positive here, but the answer is no. Dennis Meredith and 14 of his crewmates' bodies will never be found. And Dennis Meredith was one of those four men that was on the uh, raft. And he was the first to die. Even though, yes, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays survived. However, um, Dennis Meredith's, Meredith's father decided to um, do something very brave and noble. 
And by being brave and noble, it, it, a gesture or a measure, rather, I, I would say, that uh, went about keeping his son's spirit alive. So Dennis's father goes about seeing to it that services are held for his son, which also in, included having a headstone placed in the cemetery. The headstone had the following noted on it in quotations, lost at sea, including his name to having a carving of the Carl D. Bradley breaking apart on Lake Michigan surface. And there is a picture in this book of Dennis Meredith's um, gravestone with the Bradley breaking apart in two. Dennis Meredith was only 28 years old when he perished on Lake Michigan's waters. The gravestone said that he was born in 1930, a year after the stock market crash of 1929. And a ship sank 63 years ago. It seems like a long time, but in reality, it's not. So, you know, 28 years old, Dennis Meredith had a lot of life left in him, and sadly, it was cut short. But yet he was willing to make the sacrifices to go out. You know, somebody has to. But sadly, he lost his life. And I know that his family would have given anything in the world to have had him back. Who is uh, J.L. Uh, Sigmund? He is a lieutenant in the U.S. Coast Guard whom commanded uh, the Coast Guard Albatross 1273, which is an airplane that had flown for the past couple of days over northern Lake Michigan. The mission here was for um, Lieutenant Sigmund to, um, you know, try to find any kind of um, evidence that would um, out there on the waters that would be that of uh, the Carl D. Bradley. He strikes, I don't know if I'd say striking gold is right, but he does come up with a big find. Lieutenant Sigmund discovered the location of the Bradley wreckage site five and a half miles northwest of Boulder Reef. He spotted a site of oil slicks, which enabled him to confirm that, in, that, that the, slicks, the oil slicks themselves uh, were from the Bradley. Will the U.S. Coast Guard conduct hearings outside of Presque Isle County Courthouse? Yes. On its second day of hearings, the Coast Guard will convene in Charlevoix. Charlevoix has been mentioned quite a bit, folks. Isn't that where the Sundew um, departed from to go? Um, to departed. That's where the um, the Sundew, the, the U.S. Coast Guard station in Charlevoix. That's where they Captain Harold Muth and his crew uh, left to begin their search. Yes. And, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, didn't the uh, Sundew return to Charlevoix and, um, and transported off their ship, uh, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming, into the ambulance? Yes. The U.S. Coast Guard Board will interview Frank um, Elmer Fleming, Frank Mays, as well as Harold Muth and Warren Toussaint from the Sundew. Did Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays testify to the U.S. Coast Guard Board while still in the hospital? Yes, they did. Elmer Fleming's testimony would be, really was the most powerful 
Now, I'm not, just, I'm not saying that Frank Mays didn't offer anything that was relevant, but I think it's fair to say that Elmer Fleming's was, was more um, powerful just in part because, to me, he was the guy below the captain, the first mate. And as I've said before many of times, I'd say it again here real quick, if anything had happened to Captain Roland Bryan to where he could no longer perform his duties, um, Elmer Fleming was next in line to assume those uh, roles. Uh, just to give you a little um, summary of uh, Fleming's testimony, not just testimony in terms of verbatim, but how it can be best described, his testimony began by talking about when the Bradley was in Gary, Indiana, getting ready to sail back northward. He oversaw uh, the Bradley's ballast pumps that were to be used for um, removing water from the ship's ballast tanks. And during the ballasting procedures, Fleming testified that while the seas were high, the ship itself held its ground by not having water come over the deck. So he knew that, yes, they were going into rough seas, but then again, the Bradley had endured rough seas before. This is nothing new. And while, yes, they may not be able to assume just how severe the magnitude of the storm will be, even with the weather notice, they're still going out. I mean, it's not like we can just back up and make a UE like a car and then just go back to where we were to seek shelter. It, it, there's a big difference between commanding a 638-foot vessel versus driving a, an everyday car like a Honda CRV. Elmer Fleming also described to the board how it took less than five minutes from the first initial thud or noise to the ship's ultimate sinking. Less than five minutes, folks. That tells you right there just how... Um, how um, brutal the Bradley itself was internally, and how, and maybe it's fair to say that she was on borrowed time. Fleming stated how he rushed to his room to secure a life jacket, only to make it back on deck just a few moments before the Bradley's bow section rolled over. Fleming stated how he saw Captain Roland Bryan and many of the crewmen making their way towards the high side, that is the opposite side of the ship, where... They thought they would be less vulnerable to rogue waves because they felt that that was the highest point they could go to where once they got there and when they reached the water, landed in water, they would all they would all be okay. But obviously that did not happen because shortly after, even Elmer Fleming himself landed in water. This ship's sinking was very violent, folks. And it's bad enough that waves are striking the, sh the boat and the only, the only way the boat is still staying afloat is when the bow section comes back around and uh, the stern section comes back around and hits the bow to where the bow goes up and then back down. Very frightening in a short amount of time, to say the least. Fleming uh, also mentioned how he witnessed so much change before his eyes, ranging from other crewmen being thrown off the boat to the raft being swept away. The boiler room exploding. All of this, I mean, happened right before him in a short amount of time, folks. I mean, I can't imagine how much more traumatic this can get. But if there is one thing that Elmer Fleming does do, and it is a noble thing, 
After all, he's been out on the waters for 23 years. Now, Captain Roland Bryan was only captain of the Bradley for four years. But I don't think it would have made a world of difference to Elmer Fleming, even if uh, Roland Bryan had been captain of the ship for 12 years. Elmer Fleming still would have done what he had done. And that is, he adamantly defended Captain Bryan's actions, even in the ship's final moments. As she was bending from front to back, with no support for the middle ground section. In other words, the ship had no durability from its front, or the ship was it was struggling. It, it was not just struggling; it was it was gasping for any means of survival. But no support in the middle. All of that weight from the furthest point in the back, being the uh, stern, the furthest point in the front, the bow. The ship is stressed. The ship can't in, can't take on anymore. So is it safe to say those internal structures from inside have finally just been stressed, or um, they've been stressed out to the point where they can't do it anymore? Let's move on to Frank Mays' testimony here. Was his testimony different from El Elmer Fleming's? Yes. Whereas Fleming was more open with his recollections to what led up to the Bradley sinking, Frank Mays' responses were more cautious with regards to how the ship had been prepared as she went out into the storm. So Frank Mays isn't hiding anything here, folks. It's just that he has a different method for how he's going to go about responding. Mays himself wasn't as detailed with information, but he kept his testimony short with responses like yes and no, including two to three sentence answers. These kinds of responses, however, are considered uh, satisfactory, though, to the Board of Inquiry. So it's better than nothing. Did Frank Mays have responsibility behind pumping water into the Bradley's ballast tanks? Yes. This issue by itself is what really made him hesitant in terms of going about providing in-depth information to the Board of Inquiry. Why is that? Well, ballast is one of those things that's uh, it's tricky. I know we've uh, mentioned a fair amount of terminology uh, from from the time we started up until this point, but for those of you who need a refresher on ballast, ballast is what's called added weight, usually in lake water to lower the ship in the water and add stability. So if you don't have a whole lot of cargo, and we have to remember the Bradley didn't have a lot of cargo leaving Gary, Indiana, this was a small um, shipment assignment for it. So if you don't have a whole lot of cargo, isn't it fair to say that you've got to add more ballast to your ship to keep it afloat? Even regardless of how calm the waters are? Yes. So the ballast is truly, it's fair to say that ballast is what, it's not just so much that it's essential, but it's the Bradley's main line of defense against the storm. Because if there's not enough ballast in the ship, then the ballast pumps will get will get stressed to the point where the pumps are taking in more water than than they are designed to hold 
and then once the cargo hold gets flooded then you've got then you've got such a dr drastic situation to where anything that can be done to remedy the problem is um, virtually um, non-existent so in other words ballast is often what makes or breaks a ship's ability to stay afloat if you don't have a whole lot of cargo then yes you're going to need all that extra ballast there is the more cargo you have then you better think twice about how much ballast you're adding in it's a hit and miss scenario but ballast yes ballast alone was the bradley's main line of defense against the storm if if not properly ballasted then the ship's hull would have endured more stress so there is a right way to go about adding ballast to the ship and then there's a wrong way obviously frank mays knew what he was doing however it is fair to say that he along with everyone else knew that while, yes, they had been out in storms before, maybe it's fair to say that they knew that somewhere down the road that they could have been, they could encounter a storm that would get the better of everything they had done, and sadly, this one was that one. Frank Mays did provide information to the U.S. Coast Guard Board about the ship's ballasting procedures to how the Bradley maneuvered in the storm, and how she broke apart on the surface. He was, however, more open about how he survived the entire ordeal. To wrap this up, um, what did uh, Captain uh, Harold Muth, along with uh, Warrant Toussaint, um, provide in their testimonies? Well, Captain Harold Muth provided um, information that revolved around the focus behind searching for um, the Bradley wreck to rescuing Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays. Basically, he wanted to uh, present the facts, but he, he didn't want to get into anything dramatic. He, he wanted to provide true, hard, concrete evidence of what he had done. Warren Toussaint, who, was, um, who had... Uh, um, Given um, Elmer Fleming and Frank Mays, he had uh, checked their body temperatures and you know saw to it that they um, he was the one that helped pretty much helped coordinate the makeshift hospital. Uh, Toussaint described the conditions of the deceased crewmen. He you know he was the one that couldn't legally pronounce one of the any of the crewmen dead, but he had to check for their vital signs. Oh, I can only imagine having been in his shoes and having to do that. Um, painful task knowing that they were probably already gone which they were and he was the one that had to uh, had to prove the IDs of the people uh, who died the crewmen who died by uh, their wallets so Warren Toussaint described the conditions of the deceased crewmen as well as medical tr treatment that he provided to both uh, Frank Mays and Elmer Fleming you know, it's one thing to testify before the Board of Inquiry, but you better make sure that you uh, provide your information right. You don't need, well, maybe there's nothing wrong with hitting a home run, but at the same time, if you're going to hit a home run, you better make sure that you have uh, gotten your facts right, that you don't leave anything on the table to chance, but that by providing that right information, you are not only helping the Board, 
but maybe you're also helping give the families of the deceased crewmen some form of closure that may not be able to go away 100% overnight, but it, it's a start. A start is better than having nothing to start with at all. Well, I've enjoyed being on the air with you guys like I always do. Um, I enjoy uh, being able to go behind the scenes and learn more about um, learn more about matters that, yes, many of us have known that have had great historical significance, but maybe didn't get the full story that we had been accustomed to learning for so long until, say, recent years where new documentaries have come out. I didn't know anything about the Carl D. Bradley until maybe about a year or two ago, and I decided somewhere down the road maybe it was maybe it'd be worth reading a book about this um, about this uh, wreck, just like I did with the Edmund Fitzgerald a few years ago. So when I'm on the air again next time with you all, we're going to learn more about um, testimony from other um, people um, from all different. Um, Maybe if I'd say walks of life might be a good thing, um, but we will learn um, about other various um, people and their testimonies. Well, thank you again for your time as always. I look forward to being back on the air with all of you, and uh, thank you for listening. You guys are, are, are great, and continue to do what you all do. That is listen, expand your minds, be remind, remindful of just how important history is, even if there are matters that are sensitive it's imperative that we know, because after all, I don't know what the future holds, given how unstable our world is. I'm not trying to make a political remark here or get into anything political, but we don't know what the future holds. But what I do know is that I will continue to podcast and share with you all relevant stories about people, events that have been forgotten, like this one, um, for those of you who maybe aren't as familiar with the Great Lakes and the boats that have um, made their journeys along these waters for well over 200 years, their stories have to be told. But then again, we all should be entitled to have a story told that's relevant. However, I do know that sometimes we as individuals can't tell everyone else's stories. But then again, we have to decide for ourselves what's appropriate and not appropriate to tell in terms of someone else's story. I look forward to being back on the air again, and uh, take care, and wherever you all may live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, stay safe, even in these times of uncertainty. Take care.